Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Milo. It's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, Before I was Pastor Milo, at least Pastor Milo here at at Randall, I was, uh, so before I was lead pastor here at Randall, I was a church planter. Uh, Some of you know you were here during those days when we sent out from this church uh, a church plant in North Tonawanda that we call Renewal Church. And so I was the church planter that went there. And before I was a church planter, uh, I was a worship leader. Uh, That was kind of the the journey that I took to become a pastor. And so as a worship leader, uh, before that, uh, I was a Marine who played the saxophone. Uh, I have to say that because I could also say I was a saxophone player who was in the Marines. And some of you hear the difference between the two. There is a reason why you approach it the first way. Because if you say, I was a Marine who played saxophone, some of your minds go to uh, the possibility that I was dropping out of a helicopter uh, covered in green paint, had leaves and twigs all over my body. I'm crawling around through the desert in the wilderness, eating worms and whatever I could trap with the K-bar that's stuffed inside of my saxophone for supplies that I would need for a month to survive in the wild. Uh, that's that picture. Or the other picture, when I say I was a saxophone player who was in the Marines, you imagine me in a monkey suit playing the hits of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I was a saxophone player in the Marines. But before that, I was a worship leader. And because I had started out as a saxophone player, uh, when I became a worship leader, I didn't have any skills that were necessary when it came to leading music. Uh, And so what ended up happening was I picked up the bass guitar. And I'll show you uh, this morning uh, how this kind of works. So I picked up the bass guitar. Uh, because I wanted to become a worship leader in our local church. I wanted to get involved in the local church. And someone decided that this would be a good idea. I had had played a wind instrument up until this point. And so uh, someone handed me a bass guitar and they said, it's not that difficult, at least not uh, in the beginning as you're beginning to get started. And they showed me on the bass guitar, you can literally play one string over and over and over again so that you can then learn how to play a song. And that was all that I did, something like this, and I would sing a song. And there was that, I was the worship leader, and that was what I did. But the song that I learned was one of the first songs that I led. Uh, this song came out in 1999, and I became a worship leader in around 2001, 2002 time frame. And it went like this, and I think it's appropriate that it would be uh, on the bass guitar, because this is how it goes. You probably remember it. When the music fades, and all is slipped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that would bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. I search much deeper within for the way things appear you're burning into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, 
Jesus. One note. The song is played on one note on one string of the bass guitar. But the point of the song is very real. It's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. And over the years, I began to learn other instruments and play other things and lead worship in different ways. And I'll admit to you, at times, I've gotten away from and we've gotten away from the truth of a song like that. When the music fades, when it's all stripped away and there's nothing else, it's all about you, Jesus. In that same time frame, there was a book that many of you read, the, the 40 Days of Purpose, which came from Rick Warren. And the first line on the first page of the first day, if you're doing the 40-day uh, progress with it, the first line says, it's not about you. Let's start there, ground zero, it's not about you. And just like this song was a necessary song for our church, uh, and, and the reality is, is actually in, in Christian history, specifically American church history, this time frame of the late 90s going into the early 2000s is actually categorized uh, when you study it in worship studies as the worship wars of the early 2000s that happened all over this country. And as some of you have not heard that term before, some of you are familiar with that term, but you know very well that in this room and in this place and churches all over the country, there is this worship war that was going on between a traditional form of worship, a contemporary form of worship, and this song and this uh, book all kind of dealt with that main point, it's not about you. We've got to come back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to kind of use that as a, a jumping point. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 21, it says this, The people that I form for myself, I form that they may proclaim my praise. The people that I form for myself, I form so that they may proclaim my praise. You and I were literally made, we were created for worship. It was built into our operating system. At the beginning, when we start, there's this worship thing that is built into the foundation, the DNA of who we are. And as we're going to dig in this morning into 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 6, and you can open your Bibles there this morning. 1 Kings chapter 6, we're in the second week of a sermon series uh, going through the book of 1 Kings. Uh, and so we're, the neat thing about this sermon series is that we're doing it together with all of our children's programs. We're doing it together with all of our student programs. For six weeks, we as a church are going to be looking at the book of 1 Kings. What does God have to show us in this? It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I said built into our operating system is this desire we have been created for worship. In a similar way, King Solomon is building his kingdom. And he wants to literally build into the foundations the principles of what this kingdom was going to look like. He's going to put the temple at the center of the city, at the center of all the things that are happening. He wants to be able to bring this focus, this place of worship, there to the center. We all worship something. If you got a white sheet of paper that came in your bulletin this morning, we're going to do some fill-ins for you this morning so you can track along with where we're going. This is your first fill-in for you this morning. We all worship something. Why? Because we were created for it. It's built into us. 
Although very few people in Western societies actually create and craft actual idols that they can hold on to and look at and place on their mantles at home. It happens in other parts of the world. We don't see that as much here, but at the same time, we create an idol whenever we look to something or someone to give us ultimate satisfaction, happiness, or joy. Everyone is worshiping something, and yet we never find full satisfaction in things or in people, God is the only fulfillment that will ever find that. What we do is we take the really good things that we love in this world, the really things that we love in our lives and the things that make us happen, we start to elevate those things and start to look at those and put them as something that we can worship. We want them to fulfill us, but they cannot. (coughs) We look to people to satisfy this endless list of needs in our own lives. We look for them to satisfy them, but they cannot fulfill us. We look for what, what we want to do with things and stuff. We decide that when things and stuff don't satisfy us, even though we, we've looked at them, we put them on a pedestal, we say, we, we find success in this way. When we are able to connect to the people in this way, that then I'll be satisfied. And we find ourselves coming up short again and again and again. And so then what we do is we start to get introspective about it. And we start to look inside. So, well, maybe, maybe the problem isn't with the things and the stuff. Maybe the problem is inside of me. And that's, that's actually correct, but it's misleading to some extent because we start to look then inside of ourselves. And we start to look at uh, self-help books, popular books, movies, seminars, the way that you'll discover all of life's meaning if you look inside yourself and make some adjustments inside yourself. And many of you have probably tried that already. And you continue to find that is a dead-end road. Why can't you find life's meaning inside of yourself? Because you didn't create yourself. You didn't create yourself. So there is no way that you can look within yourself and decide and find out what it is that you have been created for. Only the creator, the one who put all things together, who knit us together inside of the womb, that is the only person, the creator, is the only one who could reveal the purpose that he has for you and for me. You cannot arrive at life's purpose by starting with a focus on yourself. You cannot begin this year in 2020 and say, this is going to be a new year. I'm going to approach it with new clarity and begin that search and that process within yourself. You must begin with God. You must. Your focus must begin there. And you might not like what I've just said. You may be coming here as a guest this morning. You may be coming to this place of worship. You'd expect for us to talk about uh, heavenly things to give you more information, give you more knowledge about what this religion, Christianity, is all about. But you don't like the fact that everything has to come back to that focus and we cannot look within ourselves for that focus. You may not like it. So what it comes down to is you have two options. The first option is you can live through life with general speculation about how you think that this world should work. And so we can get together and we do this. As, as human beings, we get together and we say, I think that this is the way that humans should approach the way that they live lives. And I think that this will work for us and this will make society a better place for us. And we speculate and we guess and we work at it and we get better at it. And then it turns out that the things that we thought we were so good at suddenly don't look so good anymore. So option one is to approach this question with speculation. 
Or option two, what we plan to do this morning here and should do every week when we approach God's Word is to look at it with revelation. What has God made known to us through His Word? What has He made available to us? What does the Creator have to say to us in this? This is our choice that we must make this morning. We all worship something. Where will my focus be? We all worship something, but where will my focus be? We'll find here in the book of 1 Kings, your next fill-in for you is this. Biblical worship focuses first on God's presence. Biblical worship focuses on God's presence. So where will my focus be? If you were here with us last week, we started this sermon series. We began and we looked at the life of Solomon and we see as he is following, he is now the third king in the list of kings that would come to Israel. And as he is leading, he realizes that he is going to need wisdom that he is not going to find on this planet. He's not going to be able to ask his advisors for wisdom. He's going to need to ask God. And we left last week with a question to ask one another and just simply ask this one question each day as you move through the day. Is it wise? Is the decision I'm about to make, is the place that I'm about to go, is the thing that I'm about to do, which probably isn't right or wrong in many cases, but is it wise? And so Solomon is asking that question as he looks at worship and creating a central place of worship for the people of Israel. He is asking for wisdom from God. In 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 5, he says, I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David, when he said, your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build the temple for my name. He says, I see some wisdom here because this has been laid out for me, and so this is the choice we make. I intend to do, I intend to follow some steps that have been laid out for me because it seems like God is directing my paths. The temple would be the focal place of worship for the Jewish people. Solomon is on to something good here. He is, he is making good steps. If you've read these chapters ahead of time, if you know what's going on here in 1 Kings, uh, you'll find that, that then it gets a little bit bogged down if you're just trying to read through it. We start to get the parts and supply list. Uh, when dads, when you are, you're supposed to put together uh, at Christmas Eve and you're trying to put together the dollhouse and you get the supply list at the beginning and you're shaking your head and you're pulling your hair and say, I don't care, I just want to put the thing together. You're like, what? I don't care how many of screw number four there are. And that's what we have here. So let's skip forward, if you will, to chapter eight. We're gonna go over to chapter eight because in chapter 8, we get kind of the ribbon-cutting ceremony so that we kind of see what was the point of all of the pieces and the parts as they come together, remembering that biblical worship focuses first on God's presence. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place where you can dwell forever. And while the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and he blessed them. Now, do you remember the cloud? If you, if you know your Old Testament, you know that there's, there's a story behind the story in relation to what is the point of this cloud coming into the temple. 
If you remember when the people of Israel were leaving Egypt, as they are leaving Egypt, this cloud was going to lead them as slaves out from the Egyptian thumb, out from under the oppression that they were under. This, this cloud would lead them. And as they followed the cloud, it comes to the Red Sea, and they were to go across the Red Sea. And in that, then they, they, as they come across and they decide to follow Moses' leading and actually walk across on dry ground, the cloud then goes and fights and holds back the enemy as they are trying to advance. This cloud is with them there. And then as they wander in the desert for 40 years, they're wandering around the desert, but every day this cloud leads them. And when the cloud stops, they stop. And when the cloud moves, they pack up their tents and their tabernacle and they move to follow this cloud because they know that the presence of God relies and and is inside of this cloud. And when the cloud goes and rests on Mount Sinai, and Moses decides that he is going to go up and literally meet with the face of God, the glory of God. The cloud is there over the mountain, and people are told and they are warned, do not touch even the base of the mountain because the cloud, the presence of God is there. It is a dangerous place for you to come within the glory of God. And as Moses comes back and he, he shares what we know as the Ten Commandments and many of the other laws of the Old Testament with his people, they see his face beaming and glowing because he has been what? He has been in the presence of God. And so in this ribbon-cutting ceremony, we see as the temple is opened, we see as worship is introduced in this format, we see the presence of God being highlighted. We see the blessing that King Solomon gives his people because he says the presence of God is in this place. Biblical worship focuses on God's presence. Biblical worship, secondly, focuses on God's faithfulness. Where will my focus be? Where will my focus be? Moving on to verse 20 of the same chapter. The Lord has kept the promises he made. I have succeeded David my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have provided a place there for the ark, in which the covenant of the Lord that he made with our ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. This ark was a very important artifact for the people of Israel because they knew wherever the ark was at, again, that the presence of God would dwell and that his faithfulness and his promise to keep them in the palm of his hand was going to continue in that. He had promised Abraham that he would be a great nation, a nation as as large as the the sand on the seashore, as, as many as the stars in the sky. And yet Abraham had no offspring. Abraham had no sons. How would this be possible? God was faithful. Isaac was born. He promised Jacob safety when his brother would chase after him. And just as he carried on the tradition to be able to say he would be fruitful and multiply, he had 12 sons. And yet famine came into the land and threatened to take out all of his children and all of his family. And yet God remained faithful. He had promised Moses that if he took the people out of Egypt, that he could take them to the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And yet because of their sin, now they were wandering around in circles in the desert, and he would have to wait for 40 years. And he himself would not be allowed to go into the land. And yet the people of Israel crossed the Jordan, and they go into the land because God was faithful. 
God had promised David that he, as the first king that had the heart after, he was king after God's own heart, that he would be able to be uh, in the lineage of the coming Messiah, the one who would come and rule like a true king. And he knew that that would be possible. And yet, in his dying days, he sees his two sons are trying to kill each other. And how could this possibly be the lineage of the Messiah? And yet, God was faithful. You see, Solomon focused on the faithfulness of God. Solomon focused on the promises that he had made. Biblical worship is going to focus again and again and again on God's faithfulness and God's presence. Thirdly, biblical worship focuses on God's mission. Same chapter, jumping down to verse 54. If biblical worship is going to focus on God's mission, where will my focus be? When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications before the Lord, he rose up from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out towards heaven. He stood, he blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice saying, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he what? Promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us nor forsake us. And then here is the mission that he was given by his father, the mission that God had given the people of Israel. Biblical worship focuses on God's mission. May he turn our hearts to him, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws that he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, or the mission of Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other, so that he is glorified above all else. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God. To do what? He says it again. To live by his decrees, to obey his commands at this time. Biblical worship focuses on God's mission rather than our own. Where will your focus be? You see, this moment, this ribbon-cutting ceremony, the temple and all of its splendor and all of its glory is quite literally the climax of Old Testament history. This is the best that it is going to get. And at the very heart here in, in this reign is the worship of God. During his lifetime, Solomon will lose his focus. During the kings, and we will find out quickly, I told you it's a steep, steep drop off, you will see that the kings of Israel lose their focus. But indeed, throughout biblical history and throughout the history of time, I told you that it is built into us that we were created for worship, and we see that in Scripture. Worship is evident in the Garden of Eden. At the beginning when God created all things, we find Adam and Eve, they are to worship the glory of God. Worship is prominent within the law. When we see the Ten Commandments, we see the promises of of what we do when we come before God with a a, a, uh, perspective of worship for who He is and who we are not. Worship is anticipated by the prophets The prophets take God's people and again and again and again, they start putting bumpers up. They start putting up things and say, you've gotten away from what? From worship. You've gotten away from God. 
It's anticipated by the prophet. It is pointing towards, pointing towards the New Testament where we will see the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We just celebrated being born in Bethlehem. And worship is again elevated in the New Testament. So if you'll turn over to the New Testament, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Before we get there, I want to remind you of John the Baptist. Do you remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist is this man, this prophet out in the cousin of Jesus. And what is the thing that John keeps telling the people of Israel? Because he's a prophet. What is he reminding them? You've gotten away. You've gotten away. People, come back. You must repent, he says. You must repent. And what does he ask him to do when they repent? He reminds them in the same way that King Solomon does here. He says, turn your hearts back over to God. Walk in obedience to God. Keep His commands or continue to walk in obedience. Not just obedience one time, but this continued process of following a path of obedience. This is what John the Baptist is calling us to. And then what do we see? He points over and he says, and Jesus is here. Biblical worship focuses on God. Biblical worship focuses on on God. Where will my focus be? The arrival of Jesus as John the Baptist announces his arrival to everyone is the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. Again, we talked about this in our Christmas series about King Herod was not a nice man. King Herod, who was going to have all of the little babies, all the little baby boys in all of the area, he was going to have them all killed because he was worried about the coming king who could take away his throne. But it is King Herod who rebuilds the temple. It's King Herod who rebuilds the temple, and we've elevated this temple, this thing, and all of a sudden Jesus comes in and he says, this isn't going to work. And he tells the religious rulers of the day, he said, this temple will be torn down and I will rebuild it in three days. And the religious rulers of the day lose their ever-loving minds. He said, are you kidding me? Who do you think you are? This temple took us 42 years. In John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, it has taken 40, excuse me, 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the reminder is here, the temple that Jesus spoke of was of his own body. That's John chapter 2. Him talking to the religious leaders and saying, this temple that you know so well, that you put on such a, a high point, it's been, Herod has built it to all of its splendor, as much, nearly as much as what King Solomon had done. This temple was the highlight of the religious practice of the day. They had put it on such a pedestal. And he says, I'm going to tear it down. Two chapters later, John chapter 4. He meets the woman at the well. He meets the woman at the well. And as he meets with her, they have this conversation about worship. And he finds out that she's a Samaritan woman. And we find out, see, there's this difference between where the Jews worshiped and where the Samaritans worship. And they get in a debate back and forth. And as Jesus is trying to, to help her to be able to talk about the concerns that she has in her own life, she keeps trying to point the story back to, well, you Jews say that we have to worship this way. We Samaritans say that we have to worship this way. And he stops her right there in the tracks. John chapter 4, verse 23 says this. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. And he turns back to her and he looks at her. And she says, well, this is good. This is a good conversation to have. One day, the Messiah will be able to answer all of these questions. And he looks her straight in the eyes and he says, I that speak to you am he. He takes it from being an intellectual conversation, which they had been having for generations about what is worship, and he brings the conversation directly to her, and he says, I that speak to you am he. Two chapters previous, he had just told the religious rulers of the day that the temple would be torn down. And that I, Jesus, was going to rebuild it in three days. And they didn't understand that because now he had taken something that was intellectual and brought it, narrowed it down. You see, there had had been this whole process of speculation that had been going on. Now he was revealing himself to her. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is speaking to a crowd when a man comes up and asks him how to inherit eternal life. And then the man says, all of these commandments, Jesus teaches him, he says, there's a few commandments that you need to focus on. I've kept all of these commandments since my youth, he says. And instead of celebrating this man's perceived perfection, do you remember what Jesus says to him? He says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then you may come and follow me. The ruler's problem wasn't his money. It was his heart. He was worshiping his possessions, his own good deeds. He was proud of himself because he had kept the commandments. He was possessive over his love of money and he expected Jesus to grant him eternal life based on his accomplishments. Jesus isn't saying here that we need to be broke in order to inherit eternal life or be broke in order to follow him. He says he wants us to give anything up that competes with the worship that he deserves. For some of this might be a career. Others it might be a house or a car, things or stuff or power or prestige. Anything that gets in the way of the worship of a holy God. The beautiful truth is, is the Bible says... When we put him first, he provides for every area of our lives. Yet a time is coming, and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. Matthew chapter 6, we hear that word again. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That is what you are to seek first and primarily and nothing else. A couple years back, I shared an illustration here in front of the church. I brought a bicycle up onto the stage and I took the pedals off the bicycle and I, I showed you how I like to teach my kids how to ride a bike. Over the Christmas break, we were with uh, extended family and I found out that my nieces didn't know how to ride a bicycle yet. And I thought, well, it's about time. They're getting pretty big. Let's get them on this bike. We can do this. We can do this this week. And I, just like I showed you, I took the pedals off, did different things, and wanted them to ride the bike and started teaching them how to do it. Realized very quickly there was one specific problem that was keeping my niece from being able to ride a bike. She was distracted by absolutely everything around her. And so what we did is I sat at the top of the hill and I helped her get onto her bike and I asked her parents to stand at the bottom of the hill 
and I would ask her, before we began, I, I would say, okay, Violet, you're on your bike. You want to learn to ride a bike. Do you see your parents? Where are your parents? She said, they're right there. Do you see your dad's nose? It's right there. Where's your dad's nose? It's right there. Do you see anything else going on out here? I, yeah. There's this, I said, no, 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 no. Where's your dad's nose? Look at his nose. And time after time, she'd begin. She'd go down the hill, and she'd start. And she'd start heading right towards him. And then she would look at the mud puddle on the right, or she would look at the, the fence on the left. And what do you know? She rode her bike directly into the mud puddle. She rode her bike directly into the fence. She rode her bike directly into the garbage can. And I, I asked her, I said, Violet, where's your dad's nose? Is it on the garbage can? No. She lost her focus. She lost her focus. Biblical worship focuses on God. Where will my focus be? When you hear the word church, what comes to your mind? When you hear the word church, what comes to your mind? For me and for many of you, for whatever reason, the little poem always comes into my mind of here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, where's all the people, right? Then you do it again. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. There's all the people. But it focuses us on a building, really. It focuses us on a location or a place. The time has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in His spirit and in truth. And for many of you, you need to hear this morning and be reminded this morning that the time has come. Enough is enough. The focus has been distracted on all of these different things. But God has called us to focus on him. Just like he's called your parents, my parents, generations before that, generations before that, generations in Jesus' time, all the way back to generations in Solomon's day, where was the focus supposed to be? The focus was on Jesus. As the band comes forward to finish with this final song, Biblical worship is not confined to these walls. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The temple they were reading about in 1 Kings is no longer necessary. Because when, when God tells us, when Jesus tells the woman at the well, and we read it in our scriptures today to be able to say, we are to worship in spirit and in truth. The spirit is literally dwelling inside of you and with me if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. If you have given your life to him and saying, I am going to make you Jesus, number one, I am going to worship you, then our worship is not confined to these walls. You see, the temple worship was confined to the space where God's cloud was going to dwell. That was where the worship was confined to. But when Jesus comes, he changes all that. He says, I'm going to tear the temple down, and three days later, I'm going to rebuild something new, and this is where worship will be. And then he tells his disciples, he said, wait, in the Holy Spirit, the Comforter will come. And then the Holy Spirit will dwell inside of each of you. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. We all worship something. Where will our focus be? Where will our focus be as a church?
It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about you, Jesus. You see, many of the things when I talk about church, and maybe this didn't pop up in your head when I asked you, what do you think of when you think about church? But the reality is many of the things that people resist about the church are the things that the church ought to be resisting ourselves. Judgmental attitudes are often found within the church. Inconsistent ethics within the church. They rock our churches. They rock Christianity as a whole. When you have a leader who falls, he says, this is what you've been telling us for years, but you weren't living by it by yourself. It's what's tearing apart the Catholic Diocese of Western New York right now, is the inconsistent ethic of the leaders of their church. Exclusive mentality saying, this is our place, this is for us. It's the very thing that the woman at the well is asking Jesus about in his day. Because there's this exclusivity. The Jew says, we will worship here and you can't worship here. Where will be our focus? It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. That may sound risky to you. Say, if I put everything on the table, if we as a church put everything on the table and say, it's all about you, Jesus, that sounds dangerous. And I'll say, if, if, he, was, if he was human, it would be very dangerous. We see that with King Solomon. We see that with the kings and the fall that happens after King David, King Solomon, and then this collapse that happens with all the kings after that. Why? Because they're human. And the only way that we can actually focus and put our attention and put all of our heart's affection on Jesus Christ is by supernatural means because we are not really able to do that in and of ourselves. But when we do, we will realize that he's a different kind of king. He's a king of glory. He's a king who deserves all of our focus, deserves all of our attention. If we are looking into the face of God, keeping our eyes on God's nose, we're headed in the right direction. So for some of you, you need to ask that question today. If it's all about you, if it's all about you, Jesus, what does this relationship look like today. I'll be the first to tell you that this is where we all fall. This is where I fall. In our home and in our family, I need to apologize to my own family. Yesterday, going skiing, going out, be able to do something together as a family. Lost focus. Started focusing on all the different things, all the different elements of the day that were frustrating and lost focus on Jesus. And it became all about me instead of all about you, Jesus. Imagine if our church was a place where we actually lived out this thing that we talk about. Where people walked out of this building and stopped the focus on ourselves and on things and the things that will please us. We say, you know what? It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you, for you are the king who deserves all the honor, all the glory, all the praise. That's where my mind's attention is going to go and that's where my heart's affection is going to bleed. God, help me focus on you. As the ushers come forward this morning,
There's a white sheet of paper in front of you. It's a connection card. Would you have the guts to respond this morning, just to mark something down to be able to say, this is one way, not next week, not next year, today, that I'm going to make sure that I keep my focus on Jesus. Jesus, it's all about you. It's all about you. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, for many, they're going to need to take the step today to throw everything, cast it all aside and seek first the kingdom of God. Lord, it's built into us. We were created for worship. We just redirect it very poorly. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us supernatural means by which to respond in this way. If there's someone here this morning Lord, that they do not know you. Friend, if you are here this morning and you cannot have this interaction with a holy God because you've never met him before, Jesus is very clear about this. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Focus on me, focus on my nose, and you'll have eternal life. Financially, Lord, with a calendar, with our time, our talents, our treasures, Lord, is our focus on you. Again, Lord, if someone needs to respond this morning by redirecting, realigning, aiming at you, Lord, would you give them the guts to do so in one small way here today? It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. You are our king and worth all the glory and all the praise. Thank you for being good to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.